Good morning. Good morning. Um, as most of you know, I see familiar faces. Uh, my name is Wendell Moses. Uh, I need your participation. So um, as I was looking through text and writings and stuff like that, trying to come up with quotations to illustrate our points for this week, I came across a statement. It says, the student of the Bible should be taught to approach it in the spirit of a learner. We are to search its pages, not for proof to sustain our opinions, but in order to know what God says. I typically come to the word a different direction, and that's good for all of us. So let's bow our heads and have prayer. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of coming to your word. We ask that you send your spirit. Be with this class. Be with the participants. Be with those who watch later. May we all come to know you. Be learners of your word. Guide us in our discussion. Guide us in our speech. May this be to your glory. Amen. Okay, um, this week is lesson number four, we hope, um, because that's what I studied. Um, <laughs> um, discipling children. And um, unfortunately, that word is um, an archaic word. It's not found in my dictionary. Um, or at least, and my spell checker kept knocking it off, so I had to add it to my um, spell checker so it wouldn't keep um, correcting me. Um, I will have to say that I am the wrong person to teach this class because um, for many years I was an absent father. I didn't think I was, but um, I was informed by, by my children that I was. Um, when my... Um, daughter was 13, she came to me and told me, she said, Dad, I haven't eaten a meal with you in more than a month. And um, I said, oh, yes, I have. I come home every night for supper. And um, we pulled down the calendar and it had been six weeks. Uh, part of that process and that discussion, realization, etc., is why I'm here in Chattanooga. And um, the decisions that were made as a result of that, but that was a little bit late. To a large degree, the shaping of my children's lives was due to the influence of their mother, which for which I'm very thankful. So, anyway. All right. So, I'm just looking in this class, and um, without raising hands or speaking out loud, what is the average age of this class? Does anyone in this room have a child less than 16 years of age? One couple. Okay? This is not the time to gang up on them. Okay? <laughs> All right? Um, maybe it's a time to rally around them and, and um, help if, if possible. If there's no one in this class who have kids less than 16, and if most of us are older, why study this topic? What's the benefit for us old codgers, predominantly, with some exceptions, and, and welcome, um, but um, for the most part, everyone in this class is beyond the realm of the age at which their children are undergoing discipling. Yeah, but we still have grandkids, and there's other kids in the church that we can help. Okay, so grandkids. Our children ourselves. Okay, so we are children. How does that help, though? How does that what? How, okay, we are all children. Okay. We still need discipling. Okay. By whom? By each other. Heavenly Father. Okay, our Heavenly Father by each other. I mean, what's the purpose of gathering together, worshiping together, mingling together, socializing together, if we're not to help each other? Okay. I just wondered about the topic, you know, discipling children. If, if we're learning all the issues about discipling children and we don't have any, you know... Or, or we have some, but they're beyond the discipling ages. I don't know about yours. Mine are in college, and they, um, 
although I think they have a lot to learn. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, they may not value what you have to teach. They, you know. But you never stop discipling your children. No, you, you don't. You, you don't. And I understand that, etc. But for the large part, this topic is aimed at a much younger age. Okay, we mentioned grandchildren. There are others. Okay. Now, I yes. Well, it's our job to mentor the young parents. They need encouragement and help, and you know we can go over it and the things that we have learned and the, understand the mistakes we made, and we can help them prevent those mistakes in their lives and build that relationship. I've had young parents talk to me and ask questions, and I was always the the mom with the oldest children in the women's Bible study, so they were always looking at to me. And then there was times. I just wish I knew some parents who had kids that were older than mine that I could ask questions to. And yeah. those are relationships we need to encourage and develop. That is very well put. My illustration for that is in my practice, I take care of children who have club feet deformities. Okay? Taking care of club foot deformities is a different process now than it was 15 years ago. There's a new process. It's very labor-intensive. It's largely on the back of the mother, and the success or failure of that treatment is largely on the back of the mother. Now, I, I because either the failings of me, myself as a physician or whatever, I have many mothers who, do not, who are not successful at taking care of their children in the appropriate way, and the, either because of discouragement or whatever, they end up um, having difficulties with that treatment. And so every, we do all of our club foot treatment typically on Thursday morning. And the purpose for me for doing that is that if I have a young mother who's coming in and who's early in the process, I'm going to the lobby and finding the successful parents and bringing them in and saying, do you have any words of wisdom for this young mother who is here who is just starting this process? any encouragement. And so I think encouragement is a key part of that. But it, I, I have learned in my practice that I cannot tell my parents how to, how to um, raise their children. If they ask, I am there to give advice. But it's seldom that they ask. Okay? And many times I see things that um, I would like to correct <clears throat> but it doesn't work, okay? So you have to have a receptive audience. How else can we help um, discipling children? We can be who we want them to be. I mean, it's hard to point someone in a direction you don't, you aren't in, or you don't understand. It's hard to see a relationship with God if you don't can't visualize it by the, your parent. <laughs> Having a relationship with God. I have down here mentoring. Okay? When I first was in contact with orthopedic surgeons, I had a firm belief that you could not be a Christian orthopedic surgeon. Because everyone that I had ever met that was an orthopedic surgeon was the most foul-mouthed, belligerent individuals that I had met in my life. And it wasn't until I came to Chattanooga and met Dr. Forlitas who was an orthopedic surgeon here some, you know, 30 years ago or so. Um, he was the most Christian man I'd ever, ever met. That was not a Seventh-day Adventist and not in my little group. And it was a breath of fresh air. You know, unfortunately, he died tragically, and I always wondered, Lord, why would you take this godly man? Because he, he was my knight in shining armor, you know, because prior to him, I didn't think it was possible. You know, but he was the epitome of a Christian's position. So mentoring is very important. What else? How about our church? Do we have any influence over the church to which we belong? Okay? Now the fact that we're here means that we're not in the Sabbath school divisions of little kids. Okay? But we can influence the direction that our churches take. Where we spend resources, how we have children's programs to encourage the, the programs, etc. Um... I was went to a part of first service this morning, and they mentioned that there was going to be a date night um, 
sponsored by the church in which there's child care provided so the parents can, of young children can go off and have a date night. And we had that when I was with my children growing up. And um, I was one of the support team rather than one of the people going out on the date. And um, I realized how important that was, though. Because without that team, that program does not function. And you have to be willing to support the the things of your church to make sure that it's that's um, possible to, to have children's programs, have mentoring and have discipling that but not. Okay. We tend to associate with people our own age though. You think of your friends, okay? You talk to them, you associate with them, you any social functions you do are typically with your own age. And so that makes it difficult for us who are older or for people who are younger and do not have kids to have a positive influence on people who are discipling their children into a Christian way. And I think we have to do a, we have to force ourselves to spend time, to spend energy, to spend effort to associate with people who have children. Otherwise, there's not going to be the opportunities for them to ask, hey, how did you do this? You know, or I'm up to my ears and whatever, and I'm drowning. How do I get out of this? You know, or, you know, I mean, we've all been there. And if you are not in association with those families who are going through that same process, you will have no influence on them. I think that takes a a volition, a emphasis that we have to do to be able to be a, a positive influence. And I will mention, too, that our church has a ministry with uh, homeless families. In fact, I think tomorrow they, they start another week where we keep families that don't have a home, mm-hmm. and they stay overnight in our mm-hmm. church. Mm-hmm. And you can volunteer. Part of the mm-hmm. volunteering possibility is playing with the kids and interacting with the families in the evenings and so on. And so these are not Adventists, not Christians necessarily, and they are just being provided a place to sleep so they don't have to be on the streets. Mm-hmm. And it's a really good way to inter- find children to, to volunteer for some of your ministries is, is a way to interact with children in great need of mentorship, right. and the parents as well. My son took, um, participated in that program for a while, and I had the opportunity to go in a couple times. And it's very, it's, it's, it's needing volunteers. It's, it's very, it's, it's a great program. So anyway, what happens if we get discipling wrong? We get to watch the news. I'm sorry. Watch the news. We can see the results of what happens. When I said the weeds get taller. <laughs> the weeds get taller. Does God have to come down to punish us? Okay. The, the, it's just the weeds get taller. Okay. All right. Our memory text, um, Matthew twenty one sixteen. Do you hear what these children are saying? They ask him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise. Thought, wow, that's an unusual memory verse for our, our topic, but I guess that's part of it. Um, in the first, in the, in the Sabbath afternoon's lesson, it talked about evangelizing children. Is it appropriate to evangelize children? How do we do it? It's our number one priority. I'm not reading their Sabbath school lesson. Reading the Sabbath school lesson, okay, and that's discipling those who are part of our group, or a, you know. The parent is the, probably the nearest representation to a God figure that a child will have. So, um, showing a godly love to a child is probably the best way to start. Okay. Who is ultimately responsible for that child? The parent. Right. So if we are going to have influence, often we are going to have to have influence with the, with the parent. Do we target our, our evangelism to a group? 
We usually do. Okay? Did Christ target his evangelism to a group, a specific group? So he did not use the same method for the woman at the well as he did for Nicodemus. Right. Okay? And yet, in certain situations where the Sermon on the Mount or whatever else, he was speaking to a large group that was men, women, children, um, all ages, all ethnic and, and economic regions. And so I think there's, there's time to approach a target audience. But um, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the, the, um, the um, Great Commission is go teach them everything I've commanded you, and remember I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He talks about it, says, make disciples of all nations. And often I wonder about when we are giving our evangelistic outreaches, how many segments are we hitting versus how many segments are we missing because of our delivery, okay? At one time, I was of the firm belief that, well, I was a medical student, and, and in my medical student um, days, I was, had the privilege of taking care of a Catholic priest that, was, that had gotten a, he was going to see his parishioners, and his mode of transportation was a scooter, a motorized scooter, and he was going up a hill, and his scooter did not have much power, and a dog came to chase him, and in trying to get away from the dog, he went over a embankment and he suffered some injuries and so he was in the hospital and I was you know as a medical student and on the orthopedic service uh, taking care of him and um, you know he he asked me what church I went to and um, he had a pastor's heart and um, I told him he says well I would never go to your church because you have all these little segments you have this church, you know, the Korean church, and you have the, the Spanish church, and you have this church and that church and everything else. And he says, in my parish, I have all those. And so he was being somewhat negative. And so when I got out and was finished my residency and everything else and I moved to a town, I thought, uh, well, I thought we all should go to the same church, you know, because of what he had, you know, kind of got me thinking about. And we had the privilege of swapping pastors twice a year with a sister church of a different worship style and orientation. And I realized that um, there's a reason we sometimes have to divide. Not because God isn't over all of us, but because we can't hear what someone is speaking legitimately, okay? And so I think there are times when we have to divide and conquer, you know. So anyway, all right. Um, Sunday's lesson. Um, there's a couple of statements in the lesson. One at, um, at the bottom of the, the first paragraph. The first paragraph says, Hebrew children enjoyed special treatment when compared with their ancient counterparts from surrounding nations. Child sacrifice as divine appeasement had permeated many cultures. Otherwise, children's value is often measured by their economic contributions to society. Work productivity, not intrinsic worth, define their relationship with the adult world. It is painful to say that some of these attitudes, especially when it comes to economic worth, are found even in our present world. Truly the day of wrath must come. I see shaking heads. Over on Wednesday's lesson, there was another statement. In cold, fearsome, and stark contrast, criminal acts against children, especially during church-sponsored activities, can destroy a child's confidence about church and, at us and usually about the God of the church. What wrath must justly await those who perpetrate such actions and those who protect the perpetrators? So, why must wrath come? Someone needs punishment. Okay. Is wrath going to come? Yes. 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 Yeah. <laughs> okay. 
I just want to make sure that that was um, out there. Yes, wrath will come. Okay. Defining your term. Right. Well, I mean, I'm just reading this this you know, thing, and and yeah, I think that all goes into how you define what it is, and where it comes from. Okay. So, um, is this going back to the our some of our favorite themes in this class? Is this an imposed penalty? No. Okay. I heard earlier this week on the radio station, um, uh, someone was saying that every sin comes with a requirement that must be punished. You know? It's a, it's a law of the universe that we reap what we sow. If we sow dissension, if we sow child abuse, if we sow protection of child abusers, then we will end up reaping that. It's, it's not a, it's, it's the way God created life to operate. I, you know, I like the statement, you, you um, reap what you sow. In fact, that's what I first put in my lesson, you know. But then I said, wait a minute, there's also, before the reaping, you grow what you plant. Okay? So even before the reaping, there is a time in which you're living with the results of what the plant is that you're growing, okay? And how well your plants grow depends on how well you take care of your plants, to some degree. Now, I realize that having grown tomatoes, in some gardens, blight will come, okay? And that's despite the best care of the tomato plant you can do. And that translates also over into... um, Children and individuals and we as, as you know, human beings, we are free to go our own way. The second law of thermodynamics applies to more than a campfire. Okay? Unless you put energy in, something's going to happen. And that's true as well. I witness a spectrum of parenting styles in my, in my um, practice. Um, you know, HIPAA laws and all that, I can't tell you too much, but um, I can tell you that when someone who is 12 years old is stoned on exogenous chemicals and riding an riding a ATV at 70 miles an hour, bad things happen. You know? And it's like, what were you thinking? And I don't think we are at times. So anyway, in the second paragraph, it says, Nevertheless, Manasseh's reign was the exception rather than the rule. Under more spiritual leadership, Israelites greatly valued their offspring. And this, in the whole page is talking about the Hebrew advantage versus the other, adva- other cultures and whatnot. It was talking about human sacrifice of sacrificing their children. What do we sacrifice to our gods? Do we sacrifice things to our gods that we value or things that we don't value? Well, theoretically, if you're trying to appease the gods, you're supposed to be giving something that is meaningful to you, giving that up to them. Okay. So in a culture that was sacrificing their children to the gods, did they highly value their children? So they still valued their children. So what was the difference between the Hebrews during the good days and the cultures that were sacrificing their children to the gods, Moloch and and whatnot? Was it a difference on the value of their children? There's a difference in their view of God, Ah, there's a difference in the view in God, okay? And so many Christians sacrifice their children's future identities, self-confidence, everything else, because of what they value more highly than that. We are just as wrong if we serve a demanding, coercive God that does not respect our personal freedom or a God that doesn't care what we do. 
as long as we provide him with the right payment. Okay? Or a God that makes up laws to his best interests and forces them to please himself. So you can go off in all sorts of ditches, okay? And sacrifice whatever. Personally, I had thought in an earlier time in my life that the highest ideal for me was being a Christian physician and I sacrificed my children to that ideal. Okay? I mean, if you look at the first 10 years of my children's life, I was not, by most people's description, a person who believed in he. Although I lived in a town that had the largest Wicca in the eastern United States, you know, I did not belong to that. Okay? I was a Christian, a Seventh-day Adventist Christian who was practicing and who by all outward parameters was, you know, upright. And I thought I was. But yet, my God was not the God that I currently worship. Okay? So, um, all right. At the bottom of Sunday's lesson, there's a highlighted box. It says, it's hard to believe there are adults so corrupted, so evil, so degraded that they hurt children, sometimes even their own. How can we, in whatever situation we are in, do everything we can to love, protect, and nurture the children within our sphere of influence? And I'd just like to say that it's not corrupted, evil, and degraded people always who hurt their children. Okay? Jeremiah 17.9 The human mind is the most deceitful of all things. It's incurable. No one can understand how deceitful it is. We are all damaged goods. Okay? We have no stones to throw at, um, at least I don't have any stones to throw at someone else. You know, sometimes I get very frustrated with parents and my patients. And I think, you idiots! It's only by God's graciousness that we are able to be healed and we live by His grace. So, anyway. All right. Can I, can I throw a little illustration in on that? We had neighbors that had goats for a while. And I was very thankful when they finally got rid of them because they're no longer invading our, our you know, always getting out somehow. But I noticed with the, the way the goats would handle their kids, which, of course, some people have a real problem with calling children kids, but anyway, <laughs> and the reason being that the way goats treat their young is unbelievable. They, they are so mean and unattentive to their young that you would think, how can any of them ever survive? And and but there are other animals that are very nurturing that you know that you know open up when it's time to, to have dinner and all that. But goats, I mean, they just they're unbelievable. And so if you have illustrations like that that you can share with people that are not taking care of their children properly, then I think things like that can be helpful at times. Because wolves and coyotes don't soil in their dens, they both parents actively help house train their pups. Wow! Mm-hmm. And we think of wolves as being the the, the, the evil ones, you know. So. Well, and, and like Dobermans, for instance, we had we raised Dobermans. We had a litter of Dobermans once that they they are ordinarily very kind and, and you know they'll they'll open up and give their their young the, the food that they want but once in a while you hear some growling and snarling going on in there that it, they, they actually call it savaging and the worst worst case scenario in a savaging incident is that they will kill one of the one of the young and you know it's over wow but that's how they learn their order so, I mean, some people are more like animals than, than we like to think they are, you know. And, you know, some of these illustrations can be brought in, I think. 
I, I don't want to derail yeah. your, mm-hmm. your lesson, but I, something's been <clears throat> in my mind there. On Sunday's lesson, at the end of that first paragraph that, that you already read, truly the day of wrath must come. Mm-hmm. I read that in context from this writer that there are these horrific things that come and something has to be done on behalf of the oppressed. Okay. And we need to sort of step in and protect. And I've heard this argument articulated in our broader community uh, regarding God's character. Um, bad things are happening to human beings and God has to come in and he's got to, if nothing else, punish Satan as well as punish those people who are doing these bad things. I don't subscribe to that view of God. But I am wondering, and it may be a rhetorical question, but if you think we have a minute or two to talk about it, you've talked about in your practice things you see. Mm -hmm. As an academic, I deal with adult students and sometimes hear them talk about a worldview that they've inherited from their parents that frankly makes me sad. It's a fearful worldview. It's, it's a worldview that says, I don't dare try because I might fail, and if I fail, I'm going to get in trouble. I'm going to get a bad grade, and mom and dad are going to really come down on me. And there is a balance of how we can interact, but is it appropriate to talk for a few minutes about what things we can do? Like, like in the shaded box down here, as opposed to philosophically talking about it, are there any, does anybody have anything practical to share? Any thoughts? I think if you if you start every day praying that the Lord will enter you and make you who you should be, and then bring to your view and mind people who need to hear what he has to say, and ask him to use you throughout the day in anyone you come across, and say what he wants to say to them through you. And open yourself up as a channel to every single person you meet. It's really amazing how the Lord answers that prayer and brings people to you who he understands what they've been through in their life. He understands that perpetrators of all sorts of negative behaviors were often the victims of all sorts of behaviors when they were younger. And now they've just grown into that role themselves because they've been, they've been shown a hurtful way of life. They've been hurt by people around them, and unless they're healed, they will become the person who does the perpetrating. And so, you know, they're all God's children, and God understands what they've been through, and you don't. (laughs) And most of the time, nobody really knows what somebody's been through in their life. And if God sees their heart and knows what that person needs to hear, and you open yourself up to be that voice, God will show you what to say and how to behave towards that person. You don't have to, you know, have, it's not a cookie cutter thing. You know, Jesus in in John, Jesus said, you know, nobody had to tell them who they were. He knew them all. He knew all about them. Just like the Samaritan woman, he knew her whole history. He knew everybody's history. And as a person, using the same principles that Jesus used, we can also be put in that position through the Holy Spirit to really have insight into what that person needs to hear, each and every person you come across through the day. It's that we spend so much of our time uh, in our own little world, you know, handling our own business, and we don't really open our open ourselves to be that channel and to gain that insight from God, which I think is the truest miracle that Jesus had, was his, his great insight into whoever he talked with. That's sort of miraculous to me. Another part of that is is what Christ says, he that has ears, let him hear. And I think that's really the first step, is to pray that God's Spirit will open our ears to hear the opportunities and to see, have eyes that see and whatnot. Within my practice, there's very little redemptive things that we do. But I will have to say that um, we are a team. And often things that I miss... My staff will come up and poke me and say, don't, we, don't you think we ought to be doing this? You know? And there are things that can be done. You look at the grand picture, you think, Lord, this is, this is spitting in the wind. This is, you know, dropping the bucket or whatever minuscule thing you want to compare it to. But we don't know the end result of those actions. You know? People always send you crazy stuff on Facebook. And I read a story last night of, of how a teacher made the difference in a child's life 
you know, now a teacher's with them much more than I am, you know, in interactions, etc. This is a fifth grade teacher or whatever, and how the, a child's life is turned around. At your level and at my level, I think the, the opportunities are, are narrower. But still, we do have opportunities to speak as the Spirit prompts us to speak on behalf of His kingdom. And I think we also can establish mechanisms within schools where we have opportunities for students to get together to explore things. For, and for my um, kids growing up through um, the academy, Kaya organization was an incredible organization that I think we need to encourage amongst various people, you know. Um, there's other things, and, and um, you know, at other times I think there are opportunities like that in which there are organizational things we can do to change. Yes? I was going to say, I think the, uh, our number one evangelistic tool, whether we're dealing with adults or kids, is an unconditional love for mankind. When we, when we recognize, I mean, uh, when, you, when you show tenderness for a child or for a neighbor, um, not just because you're trying to get the gospel message to them, but because you truly care about them, that speaks such volumes to people. Um, I, I think of an example of my dad when he went to, um, he was at the VA, you know, he had some issues with, um, when he walks along, he, you know, he, he's got um, poor circulation in his legs, and he's got terrible pains, so he can't, his balance is off. And he's gone to multiple doctors trying to figure out this issue. And finally, confessed before one doctor as he were talking and said, you know, just simply look through them and they were ready to go to the next patient. And he said, he got his attention and he said, I'd like you to treat me as if I were your father. And, and the question would be is how often do we do that? You know, how right. often in our practices, in our world, in our whatever it is we do, that if we were to treat, you know, the person we're talking to as if it was my child or my, my mother or my my loved one, and somebody I really cared about as opposed to that. That right there, I mean, I, I actually, I tell a story about a situation where back during the Waco time period um, where we were, we were in a church and a girl was coming into our church at that time. And interesting enough, this will kind of blow your mind, but the uh, very neat, very uh, middle, uh, middle income, perfect, you know, candidate for a person to come into a church, and we were all excited about it. And we asked her, what was, you know, do you have any questions about, you know, we're going to go through some studies, is there anything you have any questions about? She says, yes, where do you keep your guns? She tied us to the, uh, to the, the Waco situation down there because of things that she's heard on the news. And I just was blown away by the fact that somebody was willing to come into an environment here, somebody who clearly didn't have that type of a lifestyle, but willing to do so because they had a connection to a social group that they loved, that knew that they loved them. And I think that sometimes can speak volumes upon the so-called truth that we have. Mm-hmm. They will know you are by by your love for one another. He didn't say anything about the twenty-seven doctrines. He didn't say about you know all the beliefs that he we were to teach and everything else. They will know by your love you have for one another. There's a statement I came across that kind of goes along with the same topic um, in Desire of Ages at the conclusion of the chapter on. Um, Christ blessing the children. The Savior regards with infinite tenderness the souls whom he has purchased with his own blood. We, in this class, we've learned that by what we think, by what we say, by what we eat, by what we sniff, we change our DNA. And so I was reading this statement and I thought, how interesting. They are the claim of his love. He looks upon them with unutterable longings. His heart is drawn out not only to the best-behaved children, but to those who have, by inheritance, objectionable traits of character. Many parents do not understand how much they are responsible for these traits in their children. They have not the tenderness and wisdom to deal with the erring ones, whom they have made what they are, but Jesus looks upon these children with pity. He traces from cause to effect. The Christian worker may be Christ's agent in drawing these children to the Savior. By wisdom and tact, he may bind them to his heart. He may give them courage and hope 
through the grace of Christ may see them transformed in character so that of them it may be said of such is the kingdom of God. And that's our mission. You know, and I think there are structural things we can do to both the workplace as well as to our schools, to our churches and whatnot, for lack of a better term, programs that we can support that will make a difference. And that determines to some degree what what culture you're in and and what resources you have and what ages you're dealing with and everything else. Anyway, all right. Monday's lesson, um, it talks about Jesus' childhood. Okay, had Jesus bypassed childhood, arriving as a full-fledged adult on planet Earth, serious questions might be raised regarding his ability to identify with children. Christ, however, developed as all children must, skipping none of the developmental stages associated with growth and maturity. He understands teenage temptations. He underwent the frailties and insecurities of childhood. Christ encountered those challenges that in their own sphere all children face. He experienced His experiencing childhood was another crucial way in which our Savior revealed his true humanity. Okay? Would God have known what it was like to be a child if Christ had not gone through childhood? Yes. Okay? Did God learn anything by Christ being a human? No. He did not. God did not. Can someone turn to Isaiah 53:11? Isaiah 53 is a, is a chapter which we often read at Christmas time and stuff. Part of the Messiah, you know, talks about how, you know, Christ is this individual who is coming and will do so many different things. Someone read for us Isaiah 53:11. You shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. What version? King James. King James. Okay. Right? Someone have another version. Have the good news. Okay. Let's try it. After a life of suffering, he will again have joy. He will know that he did not suffer in vain. My devoted servant with whom I am pleased will bear the punishment of many and forsake, and for his sake I will forgive them. Okay. Any thoughts about how you're re- reading through this? I'd like to read it from another version. He will see and be satisfied because of his suffering. My righteous servant will equip many people because of what he has learned through suffering. What? I think it dovetails nicely with the Hebrews text that says that he developed perfect character through suffering. Well, we need to define what what was so what was so suffering. Well, what what did Christ suffer with? Was, was it the the physical pain? Was it hunger? Was it fatigue? Was it loneliness? Or was it really the eradication of the selfish uh, drive that, that affects us all? Is that, is that what really caused the suffering and, and the eradication of that, which in, in ultimately led to the perfection of character? Okay, so the purpose of Christ going through childhood was what? Development of character. Development of character. Okay? So Christ did not, you know, I had a couple of questions, theoretical questions, or rhetorical questions. Did Christ go back to the Trinity and say, you just don't know what it's like down there? Give them some slack. <laughs> you know? No. God is all-knowing. He knew that. Now, Christ did not as a child. You know, he learned like we learn. Okay? Or does the human Jesus have more pull with the Trinity than the pre-incarnate God the Son have before incarnation? No. No. God has always been for us, is is all-knowing. He... You know, God is not learning something, you know. We don't have to appeal to Christ to speak on our behalf because he's human and we're human, etc. It does help us 
we can identify him better than I can with God, the being, the Trinity. I mean, whatever that is. I mean, etc. But, you know, he would have not developed a perfect character if he had not been a child. He having brothers and sisters as a child, he must have experienced some sibling rivalry, a little jealousy. One of them might have punched him out one day, and he refused to punch him back. They, they came to get him because they thought he was crazy. Absolutely, and he learned through not retaliating, part of his character was developing. But also, it was an example for us when we read back on his life, that we have the same ability to call the help from God as he did. Okay. A statement that we often like to read in this class, the law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character this man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law, but Christ, coming to earth as a man, lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. His life stands for the life of men. Thus, they have remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. More than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after similitude of the divine character, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ. So, you know, just when I was reading through this, this paragraph on Monday's lesson, I kind of got the idea that, you know, it was some trickery, you know, and yet he was human. And he, you know, God so loved us that he became human. Incredible. All right. Just going along with this briefly um, in Tuesday's lesson. Oh, I'm sorry, maybe not. Uh, no. Um, still in Monday's lesson. Um, the story of the, him being lost in the temple for three days. You know, he went to the Passover. He was 12 years old, went to the Passover. They lost him for three days. And at the conclusion of that story in, in Luke 2.52, it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. What does that word stature mean? Ah, height. But yet, you, you read that there was nothing about him that was appealing. You know, that, you know he looked on him as, you know, he, there was nothing that was drawing to us except his character. So, what does that word stature mean? Now, I'm not a Greek person, okay? I don't know Greek. But looking up in the Greek lexicon for that word, the word means of the same age, mature, maturity. So, in God's word translation, Jesus grew in wisdom and maturity. He gained favor with God and people. Like people say, he grew up. Where did he grow up? In a place where nothing good ever comes from. Nazareth. Okay? Now, when I finished my residency, I was, I was trained in California in residency, and when I finished my residency, I had very few job offers on the East Coast. Had one. Okay? It was two years old. They wanted me to come two years before. And um, that, that's the only job offer I heard on the East Coast. I had grown up in the Southeast. I promised, you know, um, a group of individuals that I would return to the Southeast. I promised. And yet all my job offers were from the West Coast. Uh, they invited me to practice in San Diego. My wife wondered why we didn't do that. Um, <laughs> I, I, I was flown to Idaho. I, um, I had job offers East L.A., West L.A. Um, I had, you know, Corona, California, Southern California, um, various places around Riverside and whatnot, and etc. I eventually chose the only job offer I had in the southeast, which was in Asheville, North Carolina. And... Um, Asheville has a lot of good things for a person coming from an Adventist heritage, okay? There's a large number of SDA churches, maybe not equal to Chattanooga, but I think it's close, the number of churches that are there. 
had four at least, uh, last night I was just clicking off the top of my head, I, I could come up with four elementary schools, Adventist elementary schools within five minutes or ten minutes driving of my house. Okay? There were two SDA high schools within 20 minutes of my house. A relatively large Christian medical community. Okay? But there were some aspects of that town that are demon-possessed. Okay? And um, I won't talk about them now, but... Um, so, what I, I realized after being there a while, is you can raise God-fearing children about wherever you go. Okay? If God has you there, he will provide you the resources to provide you with Christian children. And Christ did not have an advantage, but I also don't think he had a disadvantage because he had Christian parents who enveloped him in a envelope of discipling into God's way. And um, the parents need to be God-centered. And um, he grew up in Nazareth, you know. Um, some of the places they invited me to go practice, I just thought, who could raise their kids in this place? And in retrospect, you wonder, I mean, I don't know, maybe I should have gone there. I don't know. I didn't feel compelled by God to do that. I didn't. But do you know... Raising kids in a Christian community sometimes is more detriment than raising them in a public. We, because we raised our kids not far from Asheville, which was Fletcher, North Carolina, which is an Adventist community. It was harder for them there to do what was right than it was for the kids that came to Fletcher Academy from worldly cities. You know, I don't know as raising them in a Christian community makes it easier to be good. I was going to raise that, and then I decided I should leave that out of my my um. um yeah. Right. Yeah. Having raised uh, my kids here, right? You know, they yeah. there's been a large contingent of their friends who, shall we say, went other ways, and they had to change friendships. You know, it, it, was, it was very difficult in all the Adventist settings. They went through all Adventist schools, all the way through grad school, and many times they had to actually change friends because there was so much uh, alternative life choices mm. that people were making at that age. Yeah. We, um, we eventually homeschooled our children. In the midst of all that wealth of Christian education, we came to the conclusion that um, homeschooling was what was appropriate for our own children. Now, I went there kicking and screaming. The reason we started it was because of the wild schedule that I had my family on during the first year that my daughter was required by law to attend school. Every two months we were going to a different town. And we figured that she could not, my daughter could not survive that. And so we decided, okay, for one year we can't go too far wrong. We'll just start homeschooling. We started and never quit until we moved here when they were in high school. Um, but... Um, yeah, sometimes it's, you know, and, and we decided that if, if we were going to um, let her go to school, we had picked out a school and it wasn't any of those Adventist schools that we had picked out for Christian reasons, just because of the things that have already been mentioned. Russell? Yeah, I just dovetails nicely with the, the pink section at the bottom of the lesson. The child of Jesus did not receive instruction in the synagogue schools. We can substitute Adventist schools. His mother was his first human teacher. From her lips and from the scrolls of the prophets, he learned of heavenly things. The very words which he himself had spoken to Moses for Israel, he was now taught at his mother's knee. Mm-hmm. Desire, desire of ages. Just the other day, we were back and his friends were talking about school and stuff, and we were talking about homeschool. And one of the mothers spoke up and said, you know what, I could always tell that a kid was homeschooled before they even would tell me. And I'd say, well, how was that? They're always a little bit off. And I said, off in what way? <laughs> They're very different. In what way? Well, they just don't have social skills. I said, really? I... See, and I found the opposite, because I've known a lot of kids right. in homeschool. I, I will have to... That are adjusted. Yeah. I, I will have to say that um, Asheville had a very large homeschool community. We were part of a 2,000-member uh, student uh, homeschool consortium. And so we, I saw a spectrum yeah. of homeschoolers, and we, we won't go any farther than that. Um, <laughs> all right. 
Um, just covering um, Tuesday's lesson, I will only briefly mention some of the highlights on this day's lesson because we are about done. Um, but there are four stories, the raising of a little girl from the dead, the healing of the Syrophoenician woman's daughter, the story of the man with a seizing son, and then the nobleman from Capernaum's son, were, they were all healed. What was, what was the same about all those stories? All the stories, a desperate parent came to the Christ. He healed them all, regardless of what their background was or who, where they're coming from. I can't answer the question of why that does not happen now. I have friends who've lost a child, etc. It mentioned in the um, lesson quarter that Mrs. White's two children died. Um, and, but it also um, mentions that um, mourning physical death and observing spiritual decay may be equally painful. We must cling to our loving God. The tragedy of death of a child, the tragedy of a wayward child, God has known the agony of both. And he is with us. And that's all I can say about that lesson. You know, heartbreak and whatnot, but he is with us and he is, there will be a day in which um, we'll know more than we know now. So anyway. All right. Um, we're about out of time. And um, I... Um, I don't have time to read. It'll be on the lesson notes or whatever. Um, the first sentence on Wednesday's lesson, there exists a u- unique genuineness within children that Jesus frequently appealed to when illustrating his kingdom. Their genuineness, humility, dependency, innocence somehow capture the essence of Christian living. We should all long for that simplicity and trust in living out our faith. Beginning the next sentence, the next paragraph, modern disciple makers need to learn another lesson. Children need never leave their childlike dependency behind. That bothered me. Okay? Because when I read Galatians 5.22, it says, But the spiritual nature produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I think there's a dual both benefit and danger in dependency. And in looking up um, the word dependency in Mrs. White's writings, she uses it once. She uses it in a letter in 1902 to a physician bearing large responsibilities. And um, I don't have time to read that letter. But I'd like you to, you know, we'll have it on the, on the notes. But there's two statements in that letter I'd like to emphasize. And that is, beware lest you confederate with unbelievers, accepting them as your counselors and following their worldly policy, for this is dishonoring to God. The less you expect from the world, the less attention you pay to its flattery, the safer you will be and the sure of securing salvation. The less dependency you place in men who are wise to their own conceit, the better you'll be in your standing before God. There is no safety in trusting in men who do not honor the Lord, who disregard his holy law. The less we expect of such men, whether of temporal help or inspiring example, the less bitter will be our disappointment. So we can't depend on men. We are depend on God. We do have a dependency on God. But and just because we are successful doesn't mean we're right. There's another paragraph, a very brief paragraph I would like to close on. It says, The Lord encouraged you not because your ways had been perfect in his sight, but because of he would not permit those who were opposing a good work to carry out their own ideas and plans to the injury of his cause. We have to be careful which ditch we are veering toward. And we need God's Spirit to lead us, to guide us, and to have all the attributes of his Spirit. Let's bow our heads.
Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of watching you grow up in hindsight and to living your life and to accepting what you have offered for our lives. May we know how to help those who are around us. May we have the comforting word. May we truly show love to those around us. May we experience that both in accepting what you have given for us as well as what we give to others. May we honor you this day. Amen. Amen.